I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. So honored that you join me. This segment's going to be an interesting one. Uh, I want to do. I want to touch on the last topic, though, of Chris Stewart being considered for the top spot uh, in National Intelligence Director of the National Intelligence uh, efforts. He, there are a number of kind of consequences that could come uh, if this rumor to be true that the president, President Trump, were to select Congressman Stewart to this director position. He'd obviously need to uh, resign from Congress. And then that uh, certainly kicks off a whole nother debate here locally as to who would uh, fill that spot. Now, the polls, uh, we, we heard some some recent polling data here very recently uh, about the various holders of federal office here in the state of Utah. And for the most part, Congressman Stewart's numbers are good. He enjoys a pretty good support. If he has any shortcomings, it is likely uh, having to do with his name recognition. Much of the work that he does in the intelligence space as a member of the Intelligence Committee currently in Congress is classified stuff that he isn't able to talk to. That kind of leads to a circumstance in which he needs to find things out there and and, and take on tasks and be sure that he is out there uh, while facing the challenge of uh, you know, doing the work required of him as a member of the Intelligence Committee. I also want to point out, too, that uh, I mentioned that the Director of National Intelligence oversees some 16 members of the intelligence community. Uh, it is pretty staggering when you look at this list. That would put, now imagine this, if Congressman Stewart gets the, gets the call up to be Director of National Intelligence, he then oversees the CIA, he oversees uh, the NSA. He would oversee uh, Coast Guard intelligence. Uh, and there are all these bureaus of intelligence within the different armed services. He would oversee those uh, intelligence and security command. That's within the Army, uh, the 16th Air Force, uh, under the Ar- Air, obviously within the Air Force. He would oversee that. And uh, the Office of National Security Intelligence, that's a Drug Enforcement Administration uh, office and organization. He would oversee all of that. And so the question is, is, is he qualified? Uh, I don't know. I think that uh, after serving for as long as he has on the Intelligence Committee, that he has certainly uh, become familiar with how intelligence in the United States works. And so I believe that he's uh, likely more qualified uh, than many, many others. 
uh, and maybe even more qualified than uh, the the first nominee. So I am absolutely fascinated. I'm going to continue to follow this. I promise you that. We learned in the last break that uh, March 11th is the deadline for the acting director to step down. And the rumor is that President Trump is being urged to nominate Congressman Chris Stewart from Utah to take up the mantle. Uh, the topic at hand this segment, I'm grateful to you for letting me linger on that last one for a moment there, has to do with student debt. Now, uh, you hear student debt these days, and my guess is that you almost immediately think of the Democrat plans to entice younger voters, college-age voters. For example, Bernie Sanders, I've got his campaign website right now on the issues page under College for All. It says he would like to guarantee tuition and debt-free public colleges, universities, historically black colleges and universities, minority-serving institutions and trade schools to all Second bullet point, he would cancel all student loan debt for some 45 million Americans who owe about 1.6. He, <laughs> he has this number on his website. Who owe $1.6 trillion and place a cap on student loan interest rates going forward at 1.88%. Uh, anyway, I, I laugh at it, but uh, having a fun time with that is almost beside the point. Uh, I just want you to be aware that this is when student loan debt is brought up in conversation. This is where most minds turn. Well, it turns out that there is more than that. There are other policies and programs that are in place right now in the federal government which forgive student loans. Uh, I'll tell you about it. When I was uh, asked to go serve as a congressional aide out in Washington, D.C. I was first made aware of this program, and it is the uh, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. The, the way it works is this. If you are, uh, uh, if you're working for the federal government uh, or certain uh, eligible state and local public service jobs or certain nonprofit organizations, if you, over the span of 10 years, make 120 eligible on-time payments for your student debt, at the culmination of those 10 years, if you have outstanding debt, this public service loan forgiveness program would forgive that debt. It was created in uh, 2007. Coincidentally, uh, about the same time the director of national intelligence position was created. Uh, I can assure you there is likely no uh, relationship between those two things there. Just caught me as interesting. Anyway, public service loan forgiveness program started in 2007 by President George W. Bush. The reason for its existence is that the federal government... Uh, in order to, uh, you know, legislate and operate in the executive branch and uh, assist in the goings on of the judges on the Supreme Court, it is, you need smart people. You need sharp folks. Uh, you need folks who are excellent in their field and you need to be able to compensate them appropriately for the work they're providing. Now, regardless of your party, uh, we don't want to be uh, creating uh, like lavish lifestyles for uh, public service employees. And so how do you then compete with the private sector? Uh, One example in the Air Force. There's a pilot shortage been going on for a little while now, and that is because uh, airlines like Delta and others, uh, they offer some pretty competitive and attractive compensation packages. 
And so instead of applying your skills to, uh, say, national defense as a member of the Air Force or any of the other aviation wings of the other branches of service, there are a number of folks who are more enticed by the offerings of uh, private sector uh, pilot employment opportunities. And Delta's taken a lot of those away. And so you'll see in the Air Force there are certain things, bonuses, uh, certain breaks and enticements that the Air Force has been authorized to offer uh, potential pilots to retain them. Well, that same principle exists in the federal government. So much of the work done there uh, requires a legal mind. Uh, there are many lawyers, countless lawyers, who are employees of the federal government. So many of the members of Congress that lean on aides to get advice on how to vote or what legislation to propose, uh, they have attorneys working for them. And the budgets of each member of Congress is relatively limited. And so compensation is not that high. Uh, it is very easy for individuals working in Congress to find uh, more lucrative uh, employment positions outside uh, of Congress in the private sector. The pay's better, I can, I can assure you that. Now, so how do we compete with the private sector? This program uh, was brought about in an effort to do that. And so I remember when I was being recruited to go out and work in Washington as a congressional aide, uh, one of the first things I was told about was this public service loan forgiveness program. Now, I went to I went to Brigham Young University. Uh, when I was there, the, the tuition was relatively low. It remains relatively low. And I worked, you know, long hours. And my mother and father were very generous with their uh, money. And I was able to uh, emerge from college without any student debt. So I never took advantage of this program. But I do know a lot of folks that do. And, well, the proposal is that this program uh, go away. If I'm honest, it's been kind of on the chopping block for a long time, and uh, its demise has been uh, kind of in the works for a little while now. So we'll see. It is included uh, in the president's budget released just the other day that this program be ended, and we'll see if Congress, once they draft it up, if they agree with his desire to end the program. I'm anxious to see. I'm anxious for a number of the folks who I know who take advantage of this program. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to do it myself, but it may be gone uh, for everyone uh, coming up. So that's that. I want to talk to you uh, in the next segment about guns. Uh, if I talk too much about guns, let me know. 57500 is the Utah Community Credit Union text line. Uh, I'm a Second Amendment enthusiast. I, I do enjoy firearms, both the gunsmithing and the technology behind it, as well as the uh, kind of personal challenges sometimes of marksmanship, uh, the patience required for hunting. I'm into that stuff. And so when there are topics surrounding guns here in the state of Utah and elsewhere, it, it catches my attention. Well, I want to give you an update on something going on in Virginia and also something going on here in the state of Utah. That's all next here on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. 
In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.